0: Kick off this series today on the book of Hosea. You may not even know where the book is located within the Bible. It is a part of what's called the minor prophets. Now, the minor prophets are not minor in terms of significance. They are only minor in terms of length. So the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc., just have a much longer amount of words, far more words that are given as opposed to the minor prophets. It's the first one that is given right out of the gates of the so-called minor prophets. Now, what ultimately is this book about? This book ultimately is about God telling his people what he desires from his people. What he desires for his people. This is a book that is going to put on display an an analogy, a picture that God is going to give. It's a very real picture. It's a historical account. It's a very real event that takes place, a series of events that take place. It is God using this in order to get to not just the mind, but actually to get to the heart, to the whole of the person. Mind, soul, will, all of that tied up in one, trying to get to the heart of his people. And so he gives an illustration that everyone can understand. Now, this is a very difficult book to deal with. Not in terms of teaching. It's going to be fairly straightforward. There's only going to be a few places, and I'll point them out to you, in which we say, I'm not really certain what he's saying right here, but that's very minor, and it doesn't affect the overall uh, big picture of the book. Language is difficult in the original language. There's a lot of difficult things here. It's most difficult to swallow because we think, is God really saying this? Hear me. God is giving us a picture so that we will have an idea of what he, I'm going to use this word intentionally, feels. God gives us emotion. We are made in his image. And so God is going to give us a picture here that is going to be difficult to swallow he wants us to have a taste of what it is that he feels. Now, keep in mind, his feelings are not tainted by sin. They are always and only perfect. But we are made in his image, capable of thought, capable of emotion. And the scripture indicates on several occasions that God feels. He emotes. And so what is it that God sees what is it that, that, that he um, patiently even endures in this relationship with his people? That's what the book of Hosea ultimately is going to be about let me start it out this way. We all question God's love. To some degree, we all question the validity of the depth of the consistency of God's love. We do that on a macro scale. We question his love for a world, a group of people, et cetera. We question whether or not he really sees things that are going on, and we question that on a micro scale, meaning in our own personal lives. We look at the individual circumstances of things going on in us, and we question whether or not he sees, he hears, he moves. Is he stirred at all by us? We all question God's love. At some point in our lives, at some level, we all question it. If you can say right now that you have never questioned God's love, I would question your honesty. Or I would question, how are, are, do you actually think? Or do you just accept things always and only? We all, to some degree, question God's love. Certainly, we reach places in our life where we question it less than we did before. But we all at some level question God's love. Hosea is a story of God's love. Now, I know when I say that, it's a story of God's love. For some of us, we just thought, oh, that's nice. It's a nice little story, kind of like Hansel and Gretel, kind of like Jack and Jill who went up the hill, kind of like Humpty Dumpty, kind of like, no, it's an historical account in which God is putting for us on display who he is. I want to read this to you. It comes from a man named Dwayne Garrett, and I think that this will uh, capture uh, very well. He's a commentator on the book of Hosea. I think he gives us a great picture. Though Hosea is a difficult book, it is also a great book. It is like a tree whose roots go down deep into the Torah and whose branches bear fruit of a discourse that became uh, the grammar of biblical prophecy. Many of the themes and much of the vocabulary of the great literary prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel originate in Hosea. It is also a book that jolts the reader, it refuses to be domesticated and made conventional. It does comfort the afflicted, but it most surely afflicts the comfortable. It is as startling in its presentation of sin as it is surprising in its stubborn certainty of grace. It is as blunt as it is enigmatic. It is a book to be experienced, and the experience is with God. I want to encourage you over the next several weeks, would you read through the book of Hosea? And I want to encourage you to read through it in as many different translations as you can. For those of you that understand the King James language, those of you that grew up with it, I grew up hearing my parents recite it, Um, I tried to read it here in Hosea. It was a little too difficult for me. If you understand the King James, read it in the King James, but read it in a a language that's understandable to you. I want to give you one more, and some of you will not like this. It's okay. Read it in something called the message. The message is an absolutely terrible way to study your Bible. It is a fantastic way to get some of the the grip of the scriptures on your soul. It's a poetic language. It's not a translation. It's a paraphrase. It's a a, a book that helps us. It's written in a style that helps us grasp the big picture. I'm going to quote it a few times in this particular series. Again, I wouldn't recommend that you study, do word studies out of it. highly recommend you read it in order to get the big picture. Read the book of Hosea and see what it is that God does in your heart and your mind. Two uh, quotes I want to give to you about this book. I've got probably 15 or so that are written down, but there's only two that I want to draw your attention to as we make our way. I'm about to read um, uh, uh, the first chapter here. Skip Heitzig is uh, a pastor in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and he says this about uh, Hosea. It is a heartfelt message from a heartsick prophet about a heartbroken God. And James Montgomery Boyce, no longer with us, faithful preacher and teacher at 10th Pres in, in, um, in Philadelphia, says this. It is the second greatest story in the Bible. It is a phenomenal story. If you are physically able, would you stand as we read from this, the first chapter, and we'll read all the way to the second chapter, verse 1 only. Of it. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And then the Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not Loved. For I will no longer show love to Israel that I should show at all, um, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses or horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. After she had weaned Lo Ruma go, Gomer uh, had another son. And the Lord said, Call him Lo Ami, which means not my people, for you are not. My people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. You may be seated. Now, in order to stand the, uh, understand this, let me give you as briefly as I can a, uh, a history of uh, how it is that we've gotten here in, in time in which this Bible, uh, this, this story was written. I'm not kidding. I'm starting out with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, the first two humans on planet Earth, God places them into a garden. They chose to walk away from God's sovereign control. Rather than having Him call the shots in their life, they decided to call the shots in their own life. Sin enters the world and it wreaks all kinds of havoc on the world. They get driven away from the garden. They begin to move eastward in a direction. It would be a theme that would continue. They had sons. And those sons could not follow the law. They could not abide by what was the heart of God. And so one of them actually killed the other. The final straw was that his sacrifice was more acceptable in God's sight than his was. And he finally had had enough of his law-keeping brother. And so he killed him. He gets driven away, away from the central location where God was Spending time walking with his people. As the population increased, it finally got so bad that the whole world, it says, was filled with evil in their hearts. We're always on evil all the time. And God said, I'm going to destroy the world. And so he raises up this guy named Noah to have just a handful of people who go onto, I believe, a literal boat that was massive. God rains in such a way, it had not rained before. The whole earth, certainly as Noah understood it, knew it, the whole earth was flooded and it was destroyed by water. But Noah and his family were saved protected in the ark itself. The waters rescind. They begin to populate the earth again. Finally, we come to see this character named Abram. And it's not because Abram is this righteous guy. The Scripture tells us he is actually an idol-worshiping pagan, and God comes to him and says, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to use you to bless the whole world. And so he changes his name from Abram to Abraham. And Abraham actually has descendants. There's this promise that's given to him. It says, you're going, to get, you're going to have all these children. But he's a really, really old dude. And his wife is really, really old. And she's way, way past the days in which a woman would be having children. But God says, no, nah, I'm going to give you children. It's going to be a little humorous. You're going to name your child Laughter. So that's what happens. And then that child gets married and has kids, and so finally what we have is this large population of people that turns into what becomes known as Israel. Israel was the name of one of the sons of Abraham, excited to make your way down. He has 12 children, 12 sons, rather, and they develop what's called the 12 tribes of Israel. And they get oppressed. They finally get taken over by Egypt. They are captured. They are enslaved. They are forced into manual labor, unable to do anything about it. And God goes to this guy who had been adopted by the Egyptians but was actually born Hebrew. His life was saved in a pretty miraculous way, put in a basket down a river. Royalty finds him. He, he, God goes to him and says, hey, Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back to those people that you're running from. And the reason he was running from them was because he had taken the life of one of these Egyptians. So I want you to go back to him. I want you to go to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. And I want you to tell him, Let my people go for the purpose of worshiping me. And Moses comes up with all kinds of excuses, and I can't really talk. And I can't. So if God takes away every possible excuse, and God uses Moses in an incredible way, Moses didn't do all the cool stuff. God was doing the really amazing stuff. He just happened to be using Moses in the process. But there's these 10 signs that people got. Finally, the Pharaoh says, okay, just go get out of here. They go. And then Pharaoh tries to chase them down. They're in front of water. They've got this army behind them. Nowhere to go. God opens up this body of water. I believe that literally happened. This body, of people make their way across, water closes back up on the army. God saves the people. It takes them all of about two days to start grumbling and complaining against all that God wasn't doing for them. One of the things that they complained about was that God was raining down food from heaven and it was bread rather than some really good steak. Moses gets to the time in which he's going to have the uh, end of his life. Now, they were supposed to go into this promised land. This, the promised people were, were, were coming true right before their eyes, the promise to Abraham, a people and a land. You're going to bless the whole world. They were supposed to go into this land flowing with milk and honey, which means it's incredibly fertile. There was just, there's so many things that they were going to have given over to them, supposed to do that. But instead of trusting God, who brought them out in all these miraculous ways. They said, there's some really large dudes over there, and we don't think that we can really defeat them. Of course you can't defeat them. You couldn't defeat the first ones that you're going through. It's about what God can do rather than what you can do. But they chose to look this direction right here, trust what their eyes could see rather than what they could not see. Rather than looking at the evidence of what it is that he was doing, they were looking at the potential of what he would not do. So rather than taking him at his word and trusting him, they said, no, we're not going to go. God said, okay, you're going to wander. For several years, Moses gets to the end of his life, and time comes for him to to, to have a new leader. And it's this leader named Joshua. It means God saves. It means that God's going to bring salvation. And Joshua, who was one of the only two people that said, we should trust God, we should go forward, then takes these people in after Moses dies He goes in, they conquer all throughout the land in some pretty amazing ways. One of those ways was actually literally marching around a city and shouting in worship to God, boom, walls fall. (laughs) Incredible. Joshua, time comes for him to die. And the scriptures tell us at this point, after he's dead on the scene, that everybody does what is right in their own eyes, and so they need some helping, and so they run away from God. So they run in this direction right here, away from God, not trusting the evidence of what it is that God had done, not trusting him and taking his word. trust. They choose to go some other direction, trying to develop treaties, et cetera, with others. And so God would bring in a nation in order to spank them and to say, trust me. And this happens over and over and over and over again until finally the people are calling out saying, you know what, we want a king. And God says, you're right, you do want a king, but it's not the kind of king that you think you want. I'm going to give you a king and he will be the king of all kings. But what you want right now is something that you can see with your eyes, put your hope in, rather than trusting in the word of God that he's gonna be faithful to his promises, etc." No, God, we want a king. You you don't want that kind of king? Yes, we want a king. I said, all right, you got it. So he gives him a king. He didn't turn out to be so great. But there was a little boy. He was the runt of the litter in his own house. He was the smallest one. The prophet that was on the scene thought, surely it's not this guy. But it was because his heart was inclined towards God. That does not mean he was sinless. In fact, he sinned pretty large. But the reason his heart was a heart after God's is because he kept coming back to God. No matter how many times he ran the opposite direction of God, he came back. And one of those times, it took him a full year even to repent. But this guy becomes the king, King David. He was a great king. Did some horrible things. He was a great king. David's son, Solomon. Solomon was the result of David seeing another woman while she was bathing. And David, while he should have been out at war, asked for her, and she gets pregnant. That child did not make it, but later on, she would give birth to Solomon. And Solomon, the scripture tells us, is the wisest king who at this point in time had ever lived. And as long as Solomon was on the throne, there was this incredible prospering. Solomon dies, and here's what happens. The kingdom moves into two locations. There's a northern kingdom, and there's a southern kingdom. And that southern kingdom had the line of David all the way through until they were finally taken over in 586 B.C. The northern kingdom underwent five different dynasties. It was like right out of the gates, people are fighting for control. There comes a time, though, in here in which they are prospering tremendously. The prophet Hosea is prophesying during this time in which the kingdom is split. He is in the northern part. He is prophesying in the mid-8th 8th century, so somewhere around 750 all the way through, probably 712 is when he is prophesying in the northern kingdom. And what's going on is this northern kingdom is incredibly prosperous and successful. Like had not seen this kind of success since Solomon was reigning. And so money is flowing everywhere. The economy is great. Industry is booming. Trade is good. There's really no reason for them to be concerned other than the fact that they left God. And so every Sabbath... Every Saturday, every Sabbath, they would go and they would follow through with the motions of the religion, but their hearts were far from God. And there were all kinds of injustices that were taking place. Some of the worst, though, is this. The the gap that existed between the, the, the wealthy and the poor was so significant, and the wealthy were doing absolutely nothing to take care of the poor, which was a direct command of God. And that gap that existed was so bad that sometimes what was happening, and more than one occasion, those who were poor were actually prostituting themselves at the temple from the rich, mixing in pagan gods with Jehovah God, and they were practicing in these rituals uh, and calling it worship. And God says, Hosea, I want you to go marry a woman who is going to be unfaithful to you. <laughs> if you were that prophet, would your reaction be something along the lines of, uh, um, t- um, just quick question. For clarifying purposes, want to make sure I didn't misunderstand this command. You want me to go marry a woman whom you're telling me is going to be unfaithful. Did I hear that correctly? Yes. Remind me why again? So that my people can see and feel what it is that I see and feel. I want them not to stay and sit on Gomer's sin or even their own sin. I want them to see how faithful, Hosea, you are going to be to her in spite of her unfaithfulness. In fact, I want them to see that you are going to pursue her. You are going to love her. You are going to sacrifice for her. You are going to give to her. I want my people to see how much you are going to do in spite of her because you love her. Not just go and say, well, God called me to this. And so since he called me this, I guess you need to come home, honey. A couple of things to say. Number one, God does not normally call people to this. I'm not trying to be silly or trite. This is not a normative in the scriptures. There's only one other husband that God calls in all of the scriptures to be faithful to an unfaithful bride over and over and over and over again. And that is Jesus. But the second thing we need to see is this. God's grace would be sufficient for whatever the calling would be. You may be sitting right now And you may be thinking, oh, my goodness, this is where this story is going. wasn't quite prepared for that. I have something in my own story, my own history. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's you yourself. Maybe you have been the one who has been unfaithful. Maybe you are the one whose spouse was unfaithful. I don't know what might be going on in you right now. What I can tell you is this, is a promise from the Scriptures. Whatever it is that you are facing right now, God's grace will be sufficient for you. One more thing real quick. Hosea tells us that the Lord told him to do this. Now, be very careful anytime somebody says the Lord told me. In our day and age, when we have the completed scriptures, when we have everything that God intended to say to us, I can tell you beyond any shadow of a doubt for me personally, I can tell you um, uh, it is the Lord's will when this right here says it very clearly. I cannot ever say to you, the Lord told me to tell you unless it says it somewhere in between the pages of Genesis and Revelation. I am not saying that God doesn't lead us about what college to go to. I'm not saying that the Lord doesn't tell us specifically about what a house to buy. I'm not saying that. I'm saying I cannot say with, with certainty the Lord said unless the Lord actually said it in between the pages of this. Hosea heard from the Lord, and, and we know that because it became a part of the canon of the Scriptures. So God goes to this prophet and he asks him to go through this. Who is the writer of the scriptures? It's Hosea. When is he writing this? He is likely writing this sometime after the events have taken place. He's putting it down after the or right before the southern kingdom uh, the northern kingdom is going to be overtaken because he sees what's going to happen. He knows the prophecy. And I think the reason by which he is giving that the reason that he is writing this is so that the people primarily in the southern kingdom, not exclusive, but primarily in the southern kingdom, would learn from what is about to take place and that they, as the spiritually adulterous people, would return to the Lord. Hosea writes it. It is God's people, northern and southern kingdom, Israel and Judah, that are the receivers of this particular message, and it is to call spiritually adulterous people back to the person of God, back to Jehovah God. Now, this unusual command, verse 2, he tells him to marry an an immoral woman. Now, there's been much debate and much speculation as to what does this mean? Was she a woman who was already a temple prostitute? I don't think that is the best way to understand this. Is it a woman who is already immoral in the process? I don't think that's the best way to understand this. I think the best way for us to understand this is this is a woman who was initially um, uh, faithful to Hosea, but that Hosea knew all along would become unfaithful at some point in the duration of their marriage. He is writing this. In hindsight, looking back and remembering the events that took place, do you have any kind of memory in your mind in which you look back on it, it brings some level of tears to you because you remember how difficult it was to go through it as well as the faithfulness of God in the midst of it? Do you have things that drive you to tears? Out of, man, that hurt, and oh, God, thank you so much for your faithfulness. Some of you are there right now. Some of you are crying on a consistent basis. Oh, God, help me make it through this. Help my kid make it through this. Help my brother or sister make it through this. Help my parent make it through this. It could be physical in nature. It could be psychological in nature. It could be emotional in nature. It could be spiritual in nature. Many of us right now are on this side in the midst of the pain asking God to do something. And we're saying, Lord, wouldn't it be great if five, six, seven, ten years down the road we're able to look back on this and remember how bad it hurt, but remembered how faithful you are in the process. If you are there currently right now, trust him. Take a risk. Bear your soul to him. Beg God. Ask for bold and great things but draw near to the person of God and watch as his grace will be sufficient to help you through it. His family, in verses 3 through 9, it is a unique family. It's an unusual command that he gives. God gives to, to Mary and, and a woman who will be unfaithful, and it's a unique family. And the first child is a son, And that child is called Jezreel. It is a very specific name that God is giving to Hosea to call this child. Now, why does he do that? He reminds him of a particular event that took place in which God's people took matters into their own hands, and they went way, way, way past justice, and they went into vengeance mode on their own. They went way past what God had called them to do. Now, what does it mean? It means God sows or God scatters. Here's what he was trying to tell the people. What I'm going to do is actually scatter you. What happened in the garden? God scattered them. What happened at the Tower of Babel? The languages were confused the the whole god is about gathering god is about community god is about drawing in and what he tells the people right here you continue to ignore me you continue to ignore me you continue to ignore me so i'm going to let you experience what life is like without me and he is going to scatter them is there anything worse than being alone Whatever it is that you may be experiencing right now, I hope and pray, and I mean this with sincerity, that you have a loved one that can walk with you through whatever the difficulty is. Jezreel, God sows or God scatters. Now, notice here in verse 3, it tells us that Gomer gave, uh, gave him a son. Now notice, though, that it says that the second child was just born. It does not say it was necessarily born to Hosea. Now, we don't know for sure. I will tell you what David thinks, thus thinketh David, not thus saith the Lord, but thus thinketh David is that this is not his child, biological child. There are others who would disagree with that that's um, fine. It, it, ultimately, it doesn't matter. I, I just think it adds to the story. And to me, it makes the most amount of sense based on this, uh, to the names. She gives birth to a daughter. And then God says, I want you to call this daughter unpitied, not loved, no mercy. Now, can you imagine naming your daughter this? Like calling her in from the neighborhood. She's out playing. Hey, no mercy. Come home. Not loved. Not pitied. Now, what kind of psychological damage is there to a daughter who is hearing regularly? You know who you are? You're not loved. You're not pitied. You're not receiving mercy. Mercy. The third child is Loa me, and that child mean, that name means not my people. Not only would he scatter them, not only would he remove his mercy from them, he was actually going to remove his name from them. This would be like someone casting a child out of the home and removing the last name from them. May not sound as big of a deal in our particular day and age, uh, trust me, in the day and age in which it was written. Those receiving this message, those that were hearing it, caught it loudly and clearly. Here's the thing. Even though they heard it from the prophet Hosea, it didn't really move the needle. Now why? Because of everything that this whole illustration is pointing to. The reason it didn't move the needle is because they showed up faithfully on Saturdays. And they went through all of the rituals that they were required to go through. And they said the right words and they sang the right songs but they never dwelled on the meaning of it. And more importantly, it never dawned on them that the person that they were seeing to was actually their spouse. Meaning what? That God desired a relationship with them, not just service from them. How great and, and how easy would it be for me to, to have gone to Judith before we got married? Say, hey, Judith, I want you to know I love you. And I mean, when I lo- I love you, like nobody, you are, you are special. And she's saying, "Good, great thing." And then I pull out a ring and I put it on her finger. And said, I can't wait till we get married. And she says, "Me too." And I said, "And I just want you to know that over the next several years, I want you to know there's going to be some other women that I'm going to continue to date." And she were to look at that engagement ring, I'm, I'm sorry, do you? Do you understand really what this means? Oh yeah, yeah. No, I love you. Like you're at the top. So I want you, you have a very special place in my heart. But there's other women. Other women are interesting. And I'm not entirely sure that you can meet all the needs that you're supposed to meet. No person can meet all the needs of another person. But all the needs you're supposed—I'm not sure that you can really do that. And so I want you to know, from time to time, I'm gonna have to go out. These other needs met. Does that sound like a marriage to you? And that's exactly what was going on with the people in the nation of Israel. It was, God, you are great. I mean, you're the main God, you're you're the top dog in there, but, but but surely you don't expect us to think you're exclusive. Surely you don't think we can put all of our hope, all of our trust all of our comfort. Surely you don't think we can go to you alone and exclusively with all of our worship. I mean, there's no other God that demands that but you. Do you realize what God is after when it comes to you? He's not after your Sunday morning service. He's not after what it is that you can do for him. He's not after all the things that you can give to further the cause of Christianity. He doesn't need your money. He has never needed your talent. God does not need a single thing from anyone who has ever existed. What he calls us to, what he asks for, what he wants, not because he needs it, but because he wants it is a relationship with you. He wants you to show up and to take him at his word and to trust that he is capable and sufficient to supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus, which means that there is never a circumstances, never something that you will face presently or in the future that he will be incapable of giving you the ability to make it through. So, do you want to come to him, or do you want to come to a religion? Religion is short-lived. It's temporal. And at the end of the day, it will leave you feeling bitter. You will be more guilty, more ashamed, because you cannot meet the standard. But Jesus, on the other hand, I close with this. It says it right down there at the end in verse 10. It points us to this future prophet. It's this future king that is going to gather all of the people together. Hosea, I'm convinced, doesn't fully know what he's talking about right here. But he's pointing forward to a time in which the king of all kings would show up on the scene. It would be around 700-ish years later when Hosea is writing. But he would show up on the scene, and that king would gather the people. and, And nobody at the time knew that he was the actual king, but he would do everything that was necessary. He would keep coming after his bride over and over and over and over again. And his bride would be unfaithful to him over and over and over and over again. But he was going to make it such that this bride would not be stained, would not have adultery written on her forehead or on her heart, wouldn't, wouldn't wear the scarlet A. He was actually going to wash her, to purify her, and to present her spotless before the Almighty God. That dude is worth following. Do you know him? If you don't, I would encourage you, I would beg you throughout this series, the series of Hosea, understand that this story is, yes, about a prophet and and his his unfaithful wife. Yes, it's about Israel and unfaithfulness, but ultimately it's a story of Jesus and his never-ending faithfulness to us.